Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on February 16th, 2014. Today's message is titled, The Great Permission, by Rev. Mike Wills, and is based on scripture, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. And today's scripture reading is from Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Lord God, we thank you for your word to us in human skin, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your word to us in human words, Holy Scripture. And may you open our hearts to both this morning. We ask it in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be home. Many of you know I grew up in this church. Don't hold that against me, those of you who had me in your Sunday school classes. Um, many of you also know that uh, this church uh, has been a longtime financial supporter of our church in Spokane. We're in the uh, poorest neighborhood in Spokane. Um, we are now 12 years old, uh, and it's not an exaggeration to say that we wouldn't exist without the support of Ebenezer Baptist Church, both with prayer and certainly financially. So I wanted to thank you for that. I also wanted to say that, however, this is not going to be a missions report. Um, I'm, I'm here to preach. And so if you want to know about our church, uh, you can ask me. You can call me in Spokane. You can email me. You can read uh, an annual letter I send up here. Um, but I'm not going to talk a whole lot about our church in Spokane this morning. I want to preach the word. Uh, I'm also not candidating. This morning, much to my parents' chagrin. Um, but we do pray uh, for this church as they search. Um, Pastor Ryan was a great friend of me, and uh, we continue in Spokane to pray for you guys um, as you go through that process. So uh, this morning, what I do want to talk about is mission. Some people might describe our church in Spokane as a quote-unquote capital M, capital C, missional church. Um, I think that phrase is uh, a redundant term. Uh, every church is missional. Uh, the church does not have a mission. The church is a mission. If a church is not missional, it's not a church. And I'm not talking about foreign mission. I'm talking about the everyday purpose of the local church in the world beyond its doors. Mission is about what we are doing in the world, the ways in which we exist for the world, how we are a people sent out into the world by a God who is always sending people from wherever they are out into mission. This is true from Abram to Moses to Israel to the prophets to Jesus to the apostles to the church down to this day. Our God is a sending God and to be part of the church is to self-identify as a sent people. So we're all missional. Now the church is also a worshiping community. And often it seems as though we have to make a false choice about who we are. As though we can either be a church that really worships well, as this church obviously does, or a church that really engages in mission well, but not both. And it's been said that a worshiping church has its focus inwards, and a missional church has its focus outwards. And I say that's a false choice because I intend to show that worship and mission are two sides of the same coin. They're always in harmony. They are mutually supportive. 
of each other. In our church in Spokane, we have had in the last year or two a bit of a renewal in our philosophy of worship. If you visited us a few years ago and you visited us now, you'd, you'd sense, you'd feel, you'd notice a change in how we worship. And Christian worship, as we now understand it, we say is participation in the life of the Trinity. In technical terms, the way we define it at our church is that the Spirit allows us to share in the Son's relationship with the Father. Jesus is at the center of everything the church does. Specifically, Jesus is at the center of all the church's worship. So Christian worship is participation in the life of the Trinity. Mission is participation in the Trinity's desire that all things be reconciled back to their creator. Now, everybody worships something. Everybody does. Mission exists because not everybody worships what is good and beautiful and true. One way to understand worship and mission is to say that God draws us in in worship and he sends us out from worship into mission. But even that is not entirely accurate because in our sentness, we remain in God. We remain in participation in the Trinity. We're not just sent out away from God, but rather with God. We are sent as Jesus was sent, remaining fully engaged in the life and the heart of the Trinity. Worship is what fuels this. It's what grows our love. Worship is relational. It's what grows our love and enables this closeness and participation in mission like Jesus had with his heavenly Father. Now the classical evangelical biblical text for mission is known as the Great Commission. These are the final words in the Gospel of Matthew. After Jesus has been resurrected, just before he will ascend to heaven, he gives his disciples a commission. What many take to be a command to go into all the world and make disciples. Now, evangelicals love this text. North American Baptists love this text. And as an evangelical and a North American Baptist pastor, I have preached on this text more than any other text in all of Scripture. I think we're afraid they'll defrock us or revoke our ordination if we don't periodically preach on this text. My guess is that this text is the inspiration for the mission statements in some way, shape, or form, even if they use different words, for the majority of evangelical churches in North America. Go make disciples. That's why we exist, to glorify God by making disciples some variation of that. My guess is that if you've been here at Ebenezer for any length of time or in any evangelical church for any length of time, you're probably well aware of this text. And I suspect that if you weren't so polite, you might even be tempted to tune out at this point because of your over-familiarity with it. We might say, not another sermon on the Great Commission. Not another message telling me to get out there and invite my friends and neighbors to church. There's a name for this condition, or at least I've come up with it. It's called Great Commission Fatigue, or GCF for short. Having been a North American Baptist my whole life, I too have suffered from GCF. 
And I had no intention of preaching this text. And in the past few years in our church in Spokane, I've found texts in Isaiah and Revelation and Acts and elsewhere to have more value, fresher insight into the nature of mission. But very recently, I was enabled to see this text, read these verses in a way I'd never read them before. Now that's really exciting to me. Because in the times I've preached the Great Commission, I have picked over it word by word. I have parsed the Greek and the grammar. I've considered every possible English translation. In 2005, I looked it up, in 2005, I did a 10-week sermon series on these five verses. That's a two-sermon-per-verse clip. That's a personal record for me. I was sure... I had exhausted every possible avenue and wrung every last drop of inspiration from this text that I possibly could, so I put it away and said, I'm done with you for now. There was nothing new under the sun in the Great Commission until there was. So, let's read it. It's Matthew 28, 16 to 20. I suspect many of you have the words of Christ in this passage memorized, but here's the whole thing. Again, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Right at the end of Matthew, it says this. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee. First of all, I love that there's eleven now. Twelve is a good, strong number. Eleven kind of limps along, right? We know the missing disciple. It's it's Judas. It's, It's the church a little bit broken already at its start. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, before we get to my recent epiphany, let me confirm my thesis about worship and mission. We are summoned or called or drawn. All those words mean the same thing. We are summoned to worship, and worship precedes mission. The disciples go to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. They were called there. And when the disciples see the resurrected Christ, they worship him. Before being sent into the world, they draw near to the one who calls them in order to then send them. This is no different from multiple other examples in Scripture. Isaiah 6, for example, which we read already this morning. What a great text that is. Isaiah is called. He just goes to bed at night and he's he's in the the temple. He's in the throne room of God. He is called and he's drawn into the presence. He worships through awe. The angels, the seraphs, the cherubim. Holy, 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 they're singing. He's caught up in this. He worships just by being there among them. He also worships through confession. He says, woe is me, I'm unclean. That's part of worship as well. But he experiences the reconciliation of relationship. Cole touches his lips. says, you're forgiven. Your sins are atoned for. That happens each and every week as we come to church and worship. That is part of worship, confession, atonement. Sometimes we forget about that part, but it's so important. Every single week, this narrative plays itself out in our worship services. And then Isaiah is sent out in the mission. Who will go for us? Here I am. Send me. In both Matthew 
and Isaiah and I would say multiple other texts, worship precedes, or as I like to say, fuels mission. And we tend to read the Great Commission, get right into the making of disciples part, forgetting that worship is first, right there on the mountainside. And also worth noting is that the worship is, to say the least, imperfect. They worshipped him, but it says right there, but some doubted. And guess what? There has never been a Sunday morning here at Ebenezer or anywhere else where that statement does not apply. We worship, but we doubt. Even the disciples who are standing in front of a living, breathing, physical man whom they watched die and get buried, even they have their doubts. But what do they doubt? Well, we're not told. I think we can presume, however, that their doubt is not based on Jesus. Because he's standing there, covered in scars, but alive and well. Their doubt wasn't over whether or not it was really Jesus, or whether or not he had been raised from the dead, or whether or not he was worthy of being worshipped. They couldn't possibly doubt any of those things. They could not doubt Jesus. They could doubt only themselves. They doubted whether they could obey and follow this man, not if he was worthy of being obeyed and followed. They doubted whether they could answer the call he was undoubtedly about to give them. They doubted whether they were worthy to be befriended or even loved by this man. After all, they'd already abandoned him once. They scattered. Most significantly, since they now know graphically what he meant when he told them twice in the Gospel of Matthew to pick up their cross and follow him. I suspect they doubt whether or not they will be able to die to themselves, as Jesus did. It's clearly self-doubt they are experiencing. That's who we are. And that's okay When we stop having doubts, we'll stop being human. The minute we stop doubting ourselves is the minute pride creeps in. The minute pride creeps in is the minute we cease to worship God with the desperation appropriate to creatures before their creator. I think the only danger in doubting is that when we doubt when it comes to mission, that's when technique tends to take over. That's when programming takes over. And we rely on technique and scripts and programs to do the work of evangelism for us. That's the danger of doubt, I think. But doubt itself, humility is the best thing there is. Isaiah was full of doubts as well. He verbalized them with a woe is me. That was about the most intense form of self-doubt there is. But that didn't stop him from worshiping. It didn't stop him from taking in the seraphs, the cherubs. It didn't stop him from allowing the coal to touch his lips. His self-doubt was part of his worship. Ours can be too. The thing to do with doubt is confess it, continue to worship. Jesus does not ask us or need us to be free of doubt in order to send us into mission. So on the mountain in Galilee, Jesus gives his commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. 
Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus' response to their doubts was to let them know it wasn't about them. Their success or their failure did not rest upon them. Didn't rest upon programs or techniques. Did not rest upon anything they could come up with. Jesus responds to their doubts by reminding them under whose authority they are sent. All authority is his. And he goes with them. He is always with them, confirmed through their ongoing worship until the whole world is set right to the very end of the old age. And that's great, but I still haven't said anything new. I'm not saying anything most of you have not heard before. That doubt stuff is maybe interesting. We'll think about that later. But it ain't getting me over my Great Commission fatigue because I know what's coming. I feel it's coming. You're about to make me feel bad for not getting out there and making disciples enough. And now you're taking away the programming, the technique, the training. You're saying, I'm not allowed to use that either. I feel it coming. You're going to make me feel bad. I haven't invited my neighbors over or whatever. Okay, that's fair enough. Let's get real. Let's deal with GCF. I think the real cause of Great Commission fatigue is this. Every time we hear it, and again, I think we hear it a lot. Every time we hear it, we hear it as a command. That is to say that we hear it as law. We hear it and we think to ourselves, this is what I should be doing and I'm not doing it. Or at least not very well. I think it's almost impossible to not hear it that way. And we're tired of sermons on the Great Commission because each one is meant to inspire and motivate us to evangelism. And generally speaking, it produces little in the way of inspiration and a whole lot in the way of guilt. In short, it functions as law rather than grace. And law is exhausting. So my goal this morning is to recover the grace of it all. And to do this, I want to take you on a very short journey with the disciples through a few scenes in the Gospel of Matthew prior to this ultimate scene. I'm going to very briefly give you five scenes, all from Matthew's Gospel, all that have led to this, and you'll be able to detect a common thread. Scene number one. In Matthew 8, Jesus performs a miracle. And he heals a leper of his leprosy. And in verse 4, Jesus says, See that you don't tell anyone. End of scene for our purposes. Scene 2. In Matthew 9, two blind men approach Jesus. They ask to be healed. Jesus heals them. And then verse 30 reads, Jesus warned them sternly. See that no one knows about this. End of scene 2. Scene 3, Matthew 12, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, prompting the Pharisees who oppose this act of compassion to begin to plot how they might kill Jesus. Verse 15 says, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell 
who he was. End of scene three. Scene four, Matthew 16. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you think I am? And Peter replies that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus confirms this, and verse 20 reads, Then he warned the disciples not to tell anyone he was the Christ. End of scene four. Last one, scene five. Matthew 17. Jesus takes just Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain where he is transfigured before their eyes into a being of purest light. Moses and Elijah, who have been dead for centuries, they show up, they have a conversation with him, a cloud descends, a voice from the cloud says, this is my son who I love, with him I am well pleased, listen to him. And on the way down the mountain, in verse 9, Jesus says, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. End of the last scene. Now, I won't insult you by asking if you got the common thread in those five scenes. It's obviously secrecy. Don't tell anyone. For various reasons, Jesus asks those who have seen his power or some revelation of who he is to keep it under their hats. Now, this is not a sermon about why. I might come back and preach that one if you like. But it doesn't really matter why. He insists on secrecy to make the point that I'm making today. It just matters that he does repeatedly insist, sternly, and with warnings on secrecy. So place yourselves in the shoes of his disciples. Think of the things that they have seen, just in those stories, but you know much of the rest as well. Because it's not just a healing here or there or isolated incidents of the laws of nature being disregarded. This is a pattern. The pattern of behavior of a man who seemingly has authority over those laws of nature. This is a three-year, gradually dawning awareness of just who your teacher and friend might actually be. This is holding a front row seat to the end of the age. And the dawning of a new and eternal age. This is membership in a select group of humanity that are witnesses to a man and his actions that will forever alter all of humanity. Think of what you've seen. And you're told again and again not to tell a soul. Repeatedly and sternly. You're told not to tell anyone what you've seen. Don't reveal who this man is. It is not yet time. Keep it on the down low. Mum's the word. Imagine that. I mean, wouldn't you want to tell everybody? Based on what you've seen, wouldn't it be killing you to not be allowed to say anything? We live in an age where if we like something, we report it. Facebook, Yelp, Pinterest, Amazon, reviews. We let people know if we like something. Be the first to like this. It says at the end of a news article I read online. The first. If we are in early on something that might be big, we let people know. Oh, you like that TV show? I used to watch the British version five years ago. I mean, the nice, the American one's good too, I guess. Oh, you like that movie? 
I read the book in the 80s. Yeah, the movie's all right. We love to be in on it first. Oh, you're a Seahawks fan? I loved them when they were terrible. You're a bandwagon fan. We love to be first. It doesn't have to be pretentious either. Sometimes we really just want to share our joy over something. If I read a great book, I want to tell someone about it. If I see a great movie, I want to tell someone about it. If I discover a great new band, I want to tell someone about it. There is something inside of us that wants to tell the world if we've discovered something that moves us or thrills us or shapes us in positive ways, it is natural. Which brings us back to the Great Commission. If Jesus is so great, why do we have to be commanded to tell others? In the so-called Great Commission, that's a label we've put on it, by the way. It's not actually in the text. In the so-called Great Commission, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the disciples are like, yeah, we know. I mean, we really know. You have authority over diseases, over demons, over the physical properties of nature. You walked on water. Apparently, you even have authority over death. We've seen it. We know. And you've told us to keep it under wraps this whole time. These things we have seen and experienced, you've told us not to tell anyone about them. It's unnatural, Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, the lid's off. Now you can go tell the world. Go tell them who I am, what I've done. And the way I told you and taught you how to live, everyone's invited to get in on this, so initiate them into the community. Go tell everyone everywhere. Understood against the backdrop of Matthew's whole gospel, against all the secrecy up to this point, the Great Commission is actually the Great Permission. We should relabel it. I'll start a petition. It's not a command. It's a release from the command. It's not a law. It's the grace that releases us from the law. The command was to keep things quiet for a short time. But now permission is given to blow the lid off everything you've held inside. You can do what you've really wanted to do, what's natural to do. Go tell the world. It is crazy to think that the disciples would have to be commanded or even worse, guilted into evangelism. The opposite is true. They had to be commanded not to. They would have been like my kids two days before Christmas when I have to threaten them with violence to keep them from telling mom what we got her for Christmas. Because they have a secret And they believe this secret will bring someone they love joy. And they've been told, you're not allowed to. So the only possible responses of the disciples that make sense after being told for so long to keep quiet would be relief and excitement and joy. So let's bring it back to us. At our worst moments, and we have a lot of rough moments as evangelicals, but at our worst moments, we tend to reduce this passage to a plea 
to bring your unsaved friends and relatives to church. That's what we've reduced it to with our lack of evangelical imagination. We need more people in church. We've reduced this freedom to share and spread our personal joy into a joyless church growth project. And therefore, we hear this as being tasked with an awkward and unnatural project. It doesn't flow from us. So because it doesn't flow from us, we learn techniques, we develop special outreach programs and events, and we're given motivational pep talks, and this doesn't change what is the reality for many of us. Maybe most of us, but for many of us. Inviting someone to church is the last thing in the world we would ever want to do. And so even if we did make the attempt, it would be the very definition of law rather than grace. And so we either fail to do it and are guilty, or we do it because we're supposed to, but not out of love and joy. And so yes, it can be awkward and weird. And it's a far cry from the picture that I'm painting of the disciples, that Matthew paints of the disciples. And the difference between the disciples and us is the experience of the incarnate Christ resurrected in their midst. But the fact is that this is merely a difference in perception than rather an actual difference in reality. Because the church is the community that has Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, living in its midst. Surely he is with us always to the very end of the age. We believe that he is here. Or else, what are we doing here? That's why I come around again and again to worship Worship is participation in the life of the Trinity. The Spirit invites us to share in the living Son's relationship with the Father. Worship is how we come to know Jesus as alive, as present in our midst. We do not sing into a void. We sing to a present person. And if we're ever going to know him as Lord and Savior, as the one with all authority in heaven and on earth and with the present ability, not the past ability, the present ability to heal and shape and transform us, then it begins with a genuine relationship with him as resurrected and alive and literally here among us. We are not just waiting around to die so we can go see him. He's here. We're people of the resurrection. He's here. That's everything. That is everything. Let me ask you this. Isn't it possible that the reason some of us, often myself included, have so little desire to tell the world about Jesus is because though we talk about knowing Jesus, we talk in terms of relationship, we tell one another we have good news, we create programs and special outreach events in lieu of a sense of personal mission, because we really haven't yet come to truly experience Jesus as present and powerful in our lives. We don't know the power of the resurrection. It's not a present reality. 
And I don't say this so much as a criticism either of this church or my home church or any church, but as a way to underscore the importance of worship as a significant part of relationship building, not with each other, but with Jesus Christ himself. To know Jesus here in community and to know him as the most loving, authoritative, and transformational presence here and everywhere, I submit is all we ever need to stop feeling commanded or commissioned to make disciples and start feeling freed and empowered to do it. I repeat what I said before. Showing someone what you truly love is the most natural thing in the world. When I find a great TV show, I want to watch it or discuss it with the people I love. When I find a great restaurant, I want to take others there with me. I want to watch them take a bite and say, huh? Huh? Pretty good, right? I knew you'd love it. I want them to get in on it. I don't have to be persuaded or commanded. I just do it without thinking about it because it makes me happy. I think human beings are just kind of wired that way. When we love something, we want to share it. And sharing it actually increases our joy. So the question ever before us is, do we love Jesus? It's our actions that tell the story. And love is learned. So how do we learn to love Jesus? We learn it in worship again and again and again. Again in worship every time. We confess and that coal touches our lips. We're atoned for. We're told, you're forgiven. We're reconciled. We learn to love Jesus right here in worship. And so to conclude, I want to tell you that mission as I understand it, means that you are under no command or commission or law to go out and evangelize. We say at our church, I wouldn't presume to say it here, but we say at our church, don't invite people to church unless it gives you joy to do it. Until you give yourself over to the joy of being atoned for by the risen Christ, connected by the Spirit to the Father in worship, don't bring others here to see your lack of enthusiasm. At our little church in Spokane, maybe that's why it's little, I don't know, we stay as far away as possible from mission as recruitment or survival strategy or obligation, or path to church growth. We say, if we don't love Jesus, let our little church die. Don't add to it. We learn to love Jesus together, here, in worship. So we say, don't invite a soul here until you've experienced the power of resurrection in your life. I don't mean when you decided to believe. I don't mean when you cross that line where you get to go to heaven when you die, as if that's the entirety of the gospel. I don't mean when you decided to be a Christian. I mean that you have known the power of the resurrection. I mean when what was dead is given new life. That's the gospel. On the flip side, I don't mean you must wait till you have no doubts either. 
Again, the disciples had doubts. Phenomenal self-doubt. To doubt in the presence of Jesus who shows you his hands and his side, who you knew to be dead and is now talking to you. To have doubts there are spectacular doubts. We don't wait till the doubt is gone. But they knew the resurrected Jesus. And this knowledge produced new resurrection life in this world here and now within them. So we must know Jesus. We must enjoy Jesus. We must know from experience his transformative power to bless and to heal and to renew and to resurrect us to newness. We must receive the gospel as good news in the most personal, present way. I am convinced that if Jesus really is good news for us, here in the present tense, then we won't need to be commanded or persuaded to share it. I am convinced that we will be unleashed in the most natural, loving, non-judgmental, unweird, non-awkward, unscripted, non-formulaic, non-programmatic, everyday ways. How about just loving and blessing people? Not out of effort or obligation, but because we know ourselves to be so incredibly loved, to be so incredibly blessed, that it just flows through us. Christ will flow from us and Christ will attract people to himself. Not our teaching, not our programs, not even our youth groups, our Sunday school. Christ will attract people to himself. As we walk with Christ... You don't need to be commanded or commissioned. You need to be transformed. You need to know that you are loved and united to the Father. Jesus says, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And I say, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead and come to truly live within you, and you have been raised from the dead. As that happens... And I found that it happens nowhere more than in worship with our brothers and sisters. As that happens, you will be so thankful to have permission to share this resurrection life you've been given. That's the greatest permission a human being can have. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you that you set us free. Thank you that you give us permission to share this life we have. And my prayer is that by faith and through worship, we may know you to be present. A living and active resurrection presence in our lives, in our communities, in everything that we do. And may you flow from us in the most natural ways imaginable so that the world may know. The world may know the good news that we've received. We ask it in your name. Amen.
Amen. Let's stand and sing.